you can get it on a magnet, a pin, a bumper sticker, a t-shirt. I survived another meeting that could have been an email. Right? <laughs> We've all been in enough poorly run meetings uh, to simply declare, I hate meetings, or to see them at best as a necessary evil, but an evil, an evil nonetheless. And anyone who actually likes meetings is suspect. Well, our passage this morning is a meeting. <laughs> Acts 15 is sort of the minutes of a meeting that took place 2,000 years ago. But it was a truly important meeting, and something actually got accomplished at this meeting. Well, last week we talked about Presbyterianism, elders who are chosen by God and the people to represent God and the people, and it's distinct from uh, a congregationalism where every member uh, goes to every meeting, and it's different from Episcopalianism where one person decides for the group. Presbyterianism calls for a plurality of representative leadership to discuss and discern together. Well, Ruling Elder Towner Scheffler and I will serve as representative commissioners at the General Assembly, which meets this coming week. We leave tomorrow for Greensboro, North Carolina. We will be with teaching elders and ruling elders from the other PCA churches throughout the country and even missionaries uh, around the world to discuss, discern, and decide several matters of shared interest. And along the way, there will be quite a few Presbyterian celebrations, reports on what God is doing uh, in and through the PCA in the uh, church planting, the missions, the evangelism, the discipleship, the reaching, equipping, and sending of the larger church. There's also excellent seminars where we get to be encouraged and equipped and things that we get to bring back, counsel and wisdom to Butler. The times of worship include great preaching, congregational singing, and prayer. In fact, uh, last year, uh, the uh, communion service, uh, uh, PCA elders who serve in the military helped to distribute the elements. Having a full bird colonel in full dress uniform who is an elder in the PCA serving the elements was a particularly humbling moment. Our passage this morning is what most call the Council at Jerusalem, but we Presbyterians affectionately call it the First General Assembly, the Jerusalem General Assembly, with the apostles and elders from the churches assembling together in Jerusalem to consider an important question that had arisen as the gospel had gone out beyond Jerusalem, out beyond Judea and Samaria, and had gone out to the ends of the earth. Before we read the word. Let's go before the author in prayer. Lord, you have accomplished things in and through a people that are prone to rebellion, wandering, uh, self-interest, and the fact that you could get anything done is a miracle. And what we read is a miracle. What we still experience today that as two or three gather and become reconciled, as two or three gather together and can uh, decide on something aside from ourselves, is a working of your grace continually. And so we pray that we might see and experience your grace even now as we hear the testimony of what has taken place in ages past as an encouragement to what can be still today. Send then your Holy Spirit, even as we sung, to read and to bear witness to that reading and preaching of your word, praying for the preacher who is not worthy, 
and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, so Acts 15 is sort of the minutes of this meeting that took place in which we will hear the question, the discussion, and the decision. And what I want to do is to read those one section at a time and then flesh them out. So first, here comes the question from Acts 15, verses 1 through 5. Listen to God's word. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So for the Jerusalem General Assembly, There is just one question that is on the floor. At this year's PCA General Assembly in North Carolina, we have 25 questions, 25 overtures. Seven of them are logistical, things that need to be approved regarding the boundaries of presbyteries, including one near to us, uh, to reassign counties from Pittsburgh Presbytery to the Ohio Presbytery. Another four of them are rules for how we do business in assembly meetings, uh, eight that have to do with... uh, possible changes to the book of church order, and the others have to do with particular issues that may or may not require more or less discussion. The question that's posed before the Jewish uh, uh, General Assembly is stated twice to make sure we understand precisely what the issue is. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And again in verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. At the heart of this question is whether or not we are truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. James Montgomery Boyce says, The hardest of all ideas for human beings to grasp is the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. This is because we always want to add something to it. People will say, of course you need the grace of God to be saved. No one can save himself, but you still have to do something. Some would say this extra something is baptism. Some would say this extra something is belonging to a particular church. Others want to add good works or some ecstatic spiritual experience. For the first century church, they wanted to add circumcision. They wanted to add becoming Jewish. Yes, you're saved by grace, but you must first become Jewish. And the door to Jewishness is circumcision. Now, in the earliest days, as we've seen of the early church, this wasn't a question yet, because as the gospel was going out into Jerusalem and even parts of Judea and Samaria, it was mostly going to fellow Jews. But as the gospel ministry spread, and more and more Gentiles were receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this suddenly raised this new question. Today, as the ministry of the gospel continues to spread, going to new places and addressing 
new issues. There are new questions. The gospel applies to every aspect of life and existence, and so with new applications come new questions. For example, as the gospel is being spread into uh, Arab countries and Muslims, one of the questions that has come up is, what word ought to be used for God? In the Arab language, the common word for God is Allah. Just as in Hebrew, it's Elohim, Theos in Greek, Dios in Spanish, Mungu in Swahili, Tanri in Turkish, Andrea Manitra in Malagasy. Yeah, look that one up. So, in some cases, the word that means God also means a particular deity in that culture or nation. So do we need to come up with a new word for God in that culture? Or can we use the known word and define it according to the God revealed in the Bible? Can we go to Arab worlds and teach about Allah, the Allah that's revealed in the Bible? This is a very real question in the mission field today and came up at last year's assembly. Closer to home, how can we use rainbows in our teaching about God's covenant promise when rainbows have been so effectively co-opted for gay rights? Should we just scrap using rainbows altogether? Or also closer to home, what are the rights of government resources to help those in need that don't infringe upon personal liberties or constitutional rights, including the freedom of religion that encourages Christians and even the church to be involved in civil matters? which in many cases is not even a new question when you consider that the church was begun amidst the Roman Empire. But there are new aspects to the question because of various governments and governmental systems that exist here and around the world. And so the question that exists out there are lots of ones, but the one that's here in Acts 15 is the big one. It's at the very heart of the gospel, and it's loaded with strong feelings and thoughts. Verse 2 says that it brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with those who were teaching the opposing views. It's uh, two opposing sides that are standing fast on either side of that issue, unwilling to budge an inch. So what are they going to do? Well, they have a meeting. Representatives are sent from the churches. Paul and Barnabas were appointed to go. And verse 3 says, the church sent them on their way, as you will send Towner and me this week. But verse 4 is encouraging. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the host church in Jerusalem, and the apostles and the elders. At the Presbyterian General Assembly, there is lots of welcoming as we see fellow pastors and elders. Uh, I also see friends from seminary. We're going to see some Westminster-supported missionaries. Uh, I think we're going to see former Westminster pastor Dan Curley We'll report to each other, celebrating the things that God is doing in our churches and ministries, and then the 25 questions will be presented to the assembly. And so that's the question. In verses 6 through 21, we read about the discussion. Listen again to God's word. The apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. 
for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and has read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. I love the first phrase of verse 7. After much discussion, <laughs> lots of discussion, right? You've been at those. After much discussion. Well, in the PCA right now, we have 85 presbyteries, about 1,600 churches, 5,000 teaching elders, around 375,000 total members, including covenant children there is much discussion that will take place in the General Assembly. Well, in our passage, we do not have the recording of the entire discussion, but we have three speakers and three main discussion points. Peter, with the theological truth that Jews and Gentiles are both saved by grace alone. Paul and Barnabas, who give testimonies from their missionary journeys. And then James, with a scripture text and its application, to the question at hand. Let's look at those a little bit more. First, Peter provides a theological truth. It's about the heart and God's work on the heart. Verse eight, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted the Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And he's recalling what we read back in Acts 10 when Peter received that vision the really important vision that allows us to eat bacon and the vision that says, sure enough, the Gentiles also are saved by grace. In Acts 10, so we read, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And Peter declared, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so Peter concludes in verse 11 of our passage, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. We're not saved by the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by the doctrine of predestination. We're not saved by baptism. We are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus applied to our very hearts by the Holy Spirit. Our General Assembly will affirm this same theological truth along with the historic creeds in the Westminster 
standards. So after Peter gives that theological truth, Paul and Barnabas come in with testimonies. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. In fact, that sounds a lot like what we read last week at the end of Acts 14 and verse 27 when Paul and Barnabas returned to that sending church of Antioch. And on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Those Presbyterian celebrations reporting what God has done. Real life testimonies are powerful. And in this case, they are consistent with what Jesus said to the apostles right before his ascension. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And sure enough, it's happening just like Jesus said it would. So we get the theological truth from Peter. We get the testimonies from Paul and Barnabas. And then we go to James, who brings a text from the Old Testament, Amos 9, which we read earlier in the service. A prophecy from Amos that anticipated a future king who would come and reign over the nations, even over the nations that had once been Israel's enemies. That future king is King Jesus. And he rules as king, not just over the Jews of Israel, but over Gentiles from all nations. He rules whether people accept his rule or not. And so James concludes in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So there's things they ought to abstain from, clear immoralities, as well as uh, some issues that were very much agreed upon in that culture. And James calls the ceremonial law a difficulty. Peter earlier had called it a yoke. The Jews never could keep the law perfectly. We really do all need grace. Indeed, the ceremonial law is a burden, but it's a burden that was no longer required. And as I thought about that, I thought about the burdens that exist from generation to generation so that one generation says to another, back in my day, we had to, right? Back in my day, we had to walk to school in the snow, uphill, both ways, right? I'll tell you, back in my day, you had to dial a phone, a whole rotary thing. You had to use an encyclopedia for your papers. You had to walk across the room to change a channel on the TV. Boy, it was tough back then, I'll tell you. We wish to have the next generation appreciate how hard we had it. There's sometimes even a sick sense in which we actually want the next generation to carry the same burdens that we did. And there's also a sense that we want validation of how we managed and even redeemed past burdens. This year is the 45th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, and sometimes in the discussion, we hear echoes of the battles from 45 years ago. When the PCA was first forming out of the mainline Presbyterian Church, there were issues. And so sometimes things will come up now And people will have a fear factor where it sounds to them like the same thing that happened way back when. The good news is that the battles of 45 years ago are done. And the truth won. We still affirm the inerrancy of scripture. 
we still affirm the deity of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Trinity. The good news is that the mission work has been successful in places that 45 years ago, we never thought it would go. China, Japan, India, Africa, the Soviet Union that no longer even exists. The mission field changes, the theological debates change, the gospel opportunities change, and together we discuss and discern what God will have us do next. But so many of the things we discuss today are not at the heart of the gospel. They are various applications of the gospel. The PCA General Assembly will deal with at best secondary or tertiary issues and really far beyond even that. The Jerusalem General Assembly was deciding on the primary issue that strikes at the heart of the gospel. And so that takes us from the question through the discussion and now to the decision starting at verse 22. Listen again to God's word. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers, and with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together, delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. And so in the end, what was decided, what Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and James said, was what was affirmed by the whole assembly. Verse 28 summarized it, that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit not to burden you with anything beyond uh, the certain requirements that were then listed. Did everyone get what they wanted coming in? No. But everyone agreed to support the decision, not begrudgingly going around and still vocalizing their disagreement and displeasure and furthering dissension, but to submit as though you agreed fully. What if that church had continued to have a faction that said, fine, you all want to tell the Gentiles they don't need to be circumcised and follow Jewish practices, go ahead, but we're going to still do it. Or what if they agreed to everyone's face but then went back to their own communities and badmouthed the decision as one they must follow even though they disagree with it. Or if they agreed to everyone's face, but then went back to their communities and simply decided, fine, we just won't even minister to the Gentiles. That way it's not even an issue. The scriptures and our membership vows call us to submit to the governing authorities. 
There isn't an asterisk there that says submit to the governing authorities unless you disagree with them. It says submit to the governing authorities. The only caveat is if they tell you to sin, then you don't submit to that. In fact, it's the same kind of submission that's required in marriage. And what happens in a marriage if one person submits but does so with a hardened heart? Fine, that's what we'll do, whatever. You're the boss, we'll do whatever you say, right? Doesn't make for happy marriage. On the positive side, have you ever submitted to something you did not want to do and then found out it was better than what you wanted to do in the first place? It's incredibly humbling, but it is a great experience. My submission to God's sovereignty is the best thing that ever happened in my life. I fought it tooth and nail for two years. I did not want it to be true. I did not want God to be sovereign. And finally, had to say, you're God and I'm not. And it changed everything. Jesus, who did not want to be betrayed, tortured, crucified, but ultimately prayed, not my will, but yours will, and submitted to the will of the Father, which was better by far. If you ever wanted to go to a, a certain place, but your spouse or your family or the group you were with wanted to go somewhere else, and that's what you decided on, and it turned out to be way better than what you wanted to do. People don't have to become like you, but perhaps you have to become like them, even if you've been here longer. So Acts 15 gives us a recording of the public conversation. Galatians chapter 2 gives a little bit of a behind-the-scenes private happenings. Galatians is, of course, that letter from Paul to the churches in Galatia that he had planted that we read about in Acts 13 and 14. Galatians 2 is Paul's report to the Galatian churches about the Jerusalem General Assembly. And because the issue struck at the heart of the gospel, Paul could not back down and compromise the truth. And so he writes to the Galatians, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. On secondary issues, tertiary issues, all the tangential issues, it's often wise to look for compromise. But on the primary issue, the heart of the gospel itself, we must hold fast to the truth. We think about that when we understand the gravity of the decision that was made here and how polarized the two positions and the two groups were. Those who insisted on Gentiles becoming Jewish were grounded not only in thousands of years of tradition, but it was a tradition that was rooted in the revealed word of God in the Old Testament. We're talking about disobeying the law of God. Do you realize what you're asking us to do? On the other side, insisted that there was new revelation from God, saying that the ceremonial law had been fulfilled in Christ, so that to trust in Christ was to trust in this new revealed truth. We're talking about obeying a new commandment from God. Do you realize what we're asking you to do? In our country, it's a struggle just to get Democrats and Republicans to work together. Liberals and conservatives who demonize each other. Globally, there's civil wars and genocide because two groups cannot see eye to eye, sometimes on primary issues and sometimes something far less. The Jerusalem General Assembly had this kind of polarization. So how did they come together to make a decision? Jesus. The Holy Spirit applying the redemption accomplished by Christ that softened even the hardest of hearts. And it made it possible for people to discern, to discern not their own agenda, 
not their group's position, but to surrender to God's will together. The Jerusalem General Assembly is one of the most remarkable events in all of human history. It gives us hope that there are those who truly in Christ can come together and agree where there is natural disagreement. In the Acts account, there are three main speakers who are recounted. Peter didn't have all the answers, but contributed a key theological truth. Paul and Barnabas didn't have all the answers, but contributed the testimonies. James didn't have all of the truth, but he contributed the key text and the New Testament interpretation. Theological truth, testimony, and texts of scripture, all of which point to Jesus. It's not about winning an argument by shouting louder and longer than the other side. It's not about winning the vote by political savvy. It's about the revelation of God, pointing to God, bringing together the people of God by the work of God. So in the end, Everett F. Harrison, in his commentary on Acts, concludes that the Jerusalem General Assembly accomplished five important things. The gospel of divine grace was reaffirmed. The unity of the church was safeguarded. The evangelism of the Gentiles could proceed without hindrance. The Gentile churches already established were given encouragement. And the future of the church as a whole was guaranteed. It would be great if every assembly and every church debate would continually accomplish those five things because of the truth who has set us free. Amen.